The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, and welcome to It's Relatable on Mind, Body, Spirit FM, where we talk about all things relationship. I'm your host, Carrie O'Driscoll, and I'm so happy you're here. Get comfortable and let's dig in. Hi, everybody. Today's conversation is with Barbara Becker, who is an author and an activist. And I am so excited to get a chance to talk to her about our relationship to grief and death and dying and our own mortality. Barbara has dedicated more than 25 years to partnering with human rights advocates around the world in pursuit of peace and interreligious understanding. She has worked with the United Nations, the Ms. Foundation for Women, and the Grameen Bank of Bangladesh. And she also has participated in a delegation of Zen peacemakers and Lakota elders in the Black Hills of South Dakota. Barbara is an ordained interfaith minister who bridges the sacred and the secular And she has sat with hundreds of people at the end of their lives through hospice programs. Barbara speaks on a wide range of topics, including deepening our sense of meaning and spirituality and mid-career pivots. She lives in New York with her interfaith family, and she has written a really beautiful book called Heartwood. And we're going to talk about all of those things and more today. So thank you for joining us and let's dive in. All right. So, yay. I'm so excited to have you with me today, Barbara, and to talk about all of these ideas about grief and dying and mortality and all of the wisdom that you have um, about this. So, um, thank you for being here and for doing this podcast with me. Thank you for having me. It really is an uplifting conversation. I agree. I'm I think it's fascinating. And so I just want to start with the fact that you have written this amazing, lovely book about life and death and then all of the ideas around that called Heartwood. And I would love it if you could take a few minutes to just sort of explain the title of the book for the listeners. Sure. So a few years back, um, my parents died within a couple of months of each other. And I was distraught. You know, I was searching around for a symbol or a metaphor or some way of making sense of my loss. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, my husband and I went out to the Redwood Forests in California, mm-hmm. and uh, we were walking in an old growth grove, and I learned about heartwood. So heartwood is the inner core of the tree. Every tree has a pillar of of heartwood. It's the part that's most prized by woodworkers because it's the strongest. Mm -hmm. But what is so surprising to people is that um, it's inert. Heartwood is completely dead. And for the tree to continue growing, it needs that death, that loss around which the growth rings grow. Mm -hmm. So uh, it turns out, you know, us people, we're a lot like these trees. I mean, the people who we've loved and lost uh, become our heartwood in so many ways. And we continue to grow around them so that we never truly lose the people who have been in our lives, who are important to us, who are now not here in physical form. Mm, I love that. I love that notion of like our ancestors are always with us and we're building on what they left us with. I I think that's really, really beautiful. Um, Thank you. Yeah. And it's a beautiful book. So I'm just going to start by saying everybody should go find it because there's something I feel like there's something in there for everyone. And part of that is due to the fact that you had this really interesting trajectory of learning about death and grief and sort of exploring working with people who are dying and then also exploring your own experiences. And I would, can you give us sort of a brief history of what that looked like, like how you got interested in that and, um, and what that sort of journey was like for you? Yes. So I was exposed to loss quite early in my life. Um, I was eight years old when I learned that my father had been married to a woman named Maureen before he was married to my mom. And I sort of accidentally found out by snooping in his wallet and discovering a photograph of Maureen that she um, had died tragically uh, in a boating accident shortly after their honeymoon. Uh, My mom told me about the story and she kind of over time in age appropriate ways gave me more and more information about Maureen. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I never stopped snooping. I I went into my my parents' closet when they were out and I discovered that my dad actually kept the love letters between him and Maureen, which I read. And I would come out of the closet, so to speak, and my brothers would be there. And I would say to them, do you know that we wouldn't even be born if Maureen hadn't died? So these like existential questions about life and loss came so early to me. Um, And also how to deal with loss. Uh, My mom you know, in so many ways had had like this ghost of Maureen in her life, a perfect woman who would forever be in her 20s. And mm. she and my dad never even had, you know, the luxury of an argument. Mm. So how do you deal with that when that loss is in, in your life? And my mom, my mom was an incredibly beautiful human being. She would pay to have flowers, a wreath put on Maureen's grave every Christmas that my mom lived. 
So uh, I, I learned a lot about compassion and, um, and loss in that way. Wow. I love that. Yeah, that it's, it, it is interesting. It's like those, that sort of, when people die, they're sort of suspended in time, right? And, and we, we have that, this idea of who they were as a person, but it doesn't ever really evolve. And so, yeah, that's really fascinating to think about. And then you went on to really, I mean, it's not like you pursued a career in this, right? You had this whole other career happening, but then you, you sought out different ways of working like in hospice and, you know, exploring different things. So can you talk about that a little bit, what that was like for you? Yeah. So it was years after that, after I was eight, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was actually about 30. And my earliest childhood friend named Marissa was diagnosed with terminal breast cancer. And when she was given a year left to live, she, um, she just kind of led by example while I went into like existential like huge questioning again. Uh, Marissa married her college sweetheart and she traveled to her ancestral home of Italy um, between treatments and spent a lot of time laughing and crying with friends in like a very deep and meaningful way. While I took uh, in a ton of books, my husband laughed at me because the UPS delivery, like pretty much every day, had a had a title on on loss, and I discovered that um, you know saints and sages throughout time have advised us to live with the end in mind, to not deny our mortality, but to use it as a tool from which to live richly. Mm-hmm. And you can find this in, you know, the, the Buddha's words and in the Stoic philosophers like Marcus Aurelius and Henry David Thoreau, like throughout time, we get this idea that, that you should live with the end in mind. So I, I took that on as a quest and I was trained by two Zen monks in how to provide co- um, compassionate care at the bedside for people who were dying. And I worked in Bellevue Hospital, which is our big public hospital in New York City, mm-hmm. and encountered um, how people make meaning at the end of their lives from many different cultural and religious and spiritual traditions, and and also really none at all. I just became a student of death and what she had to teach us. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating, I think, to think about how the way that each of us is sort of touched by those different things in our lives. And then, and do we allow it to change our perspective of what it means to be alive and and how we live our lives? And then, you know, how do we relate to other folks as they're struggling with those same kinds of things? You know, um, one of the one of the things I used to work in healthcare. Um, I was a medical surgical assistant for many years um, and a patient advocate. And one of the things that really struck me when I was reading Heartwood was the way that you talk really openly about your experience with pregnancy loss. And in one of the things that made me really, really sad actually um, was your experience with the medical community and the way that they 
deal with miscarriage in, in particular. Um, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that, you know, and what what happened when you shared your experience on social media versus the experience that you had with the medical professionals? Yes. So this is now going back about 20 years ago, long before there was social media. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we we are starting to talk a little bit more about um, pregnancy loss in our culture. And I think social media is is responsible for that. I mean, you know, there are a lot of celebrities who now talk about their losses. And I think it's a positive development because back when I was going through first infertility treatments and then the loss of two pregnancies, um, I was, I really kept these um, pregnancies secret. I wasn't sure if um, I would make it to term, and I didn't want to tell people about the infertility. So it got all wound up into a ball of silence and taboo. Um, and I uh, I really felt very, very alone. And it, it led to a very dark period in my life. I also asked of my husband that he not tell people because if he told people, then they would come to me and, and that pity thing that I was so afraid of, yeah. uh, you know, would have would have come flying back at me. So we just, we lived in a walled up world of, of silence. Um, many years later, and I did, I had two um, miscarriages and I also had two pregnancies that resulted in my boys. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh after they had been born, I was still mourning the loss of these two daughters. I found out that both of the miscarriages would have been daughters. Mm -hmm. And so I put on Facebook one October 15th, which is the national day for pregnancy and infant loss. Um, I explained the day to my Facebook friends. And I said, this is the day where we mourn all kinds of early loss. Um, And I just wanted to say for the first time that I lost um, two girls and their names would have been Arden and Adele. And I asked people to write in the comments if they felt comfortable, if they had any experience with this themselves. And I was shocked because over a hundred people responded and they were all friends, all people I knew about, men and women, talking mm-hmm. about their losses. But I had only known of about half of them. Mm. I mean, I just think, um, you know, maybe it's the, the distance of social media. It takes us away a little bit from the face-to-face, but it also provides an opening, um, a, a safe place in some ways to share our stories. Yeah, I think you're right. There's that sense of, it's like you said, you know, that sort of pity, right? You don't want people to to be all awkward and not sure how to talk to you about it. But there is something about doing it online where there's enough of a distance or you've, you know, people can, maybe they can have more measured or more thoughtful or intentional responses instead of that. Because as the person who's suffering the loss, right, sometimes I, I've had this experience when like when I was communicating that my father was dying to people, mm-hmm. it, it's almost like I feel like I need to take care of them because they're 
response in the moment is so overwhelmed or, oh my, you know, they don't know what to do. And so then I feel like I, even as the grieving person, I it's my job to sort of tell them how to support me, but it shouldn't be. <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. That nothing is truer than that. And it shouldn't be our job to be taking on other people's sorrows. We have to learn how to grieve. And it's such a problem when, um, you know, we live in this death shy world and we'd rather talk about anything but death and loss. Um, we don't, we don't learn how to care for ourselves and we certainly don't learn how to care for others. Right. And that's one of the things I think one of the things I think a lot of us are just beginning to understand is the importance of just bearing witness. Yes. Right. In all sorts of, you know, like a divorce or a death or, you know, any really, really big painful moments. Right. Um, And I'm and I'm wondering if you might if you could maybe talk about like what was when you had that realization of the sort of the impact and the importance of bearing witness and and how you and what you think about, well, you know, even just sort of describing what that even means for people who who haven't heard that before or don't really know. Um, and then has it changed the way that you show up for people and view grief as a process? Mm. So to me, bearing witness is being present um, with life as it is. And that includes all of the positives and the negatives. Mm. Um, You know, the Taoists have this great expression that this is a world of 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. Mm. And we really can't have one without the other. But our society grooms us for the positive. It's what we see in the media. It's how we treat social media often, like here are the highlights of my life, to the point where there is now a term called toxic positivity. Um, And when we're faced with something sorrowful, people will often say, well, it was meant to be, or look on the bright side. And it could be worse. It (laughs) It could be worse, right? That's a terrible one. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's everybody's trying to do their best, but we just haven't learned what that does. And when I hear something like that, it, um, it just makes me feel guilty for feeling bad, um, yes. for denying like the full wholeness of, of who I am. Yeah. Um, so now psychologists are starting to look at psychological richness instead. This mm-hmm. like allows in the full complexity of who we are, the light and the shadows. Mm-hmm. Um, and these lessons are everywhere. I wrote about so many of them in Heartwood, whether it's sitting with a survivor of the genocide in Rwanda or um, I've been working quite a bit with um, Lakota elders in South Dakota and a group called the Zen Peacemakers bearing witness to essentially the genocide that has happened in our own country, in the U.S., our entire continent. Um, And it, it involves sitting and listening for hours and hours, if that's what it takes to the pain of, of the stories of the Lakota who I've come to know. Um, 
But we can do this for each other in all arenas of our lives, whether it's um, sitting in ceremony with an elder at the gravesite at the massacre at Wounded Knee or in a hospice room or just learning how to listen more deeply to the people that we love in the moments of difficulty in their lives. And I love that you, you know, you broadened loss because um, a lot of people have come to me after reading Heartwood, which was about mainly physical death. And they've said, well, this is really resonant with my divorce or with my change in health status. When I found out I had a certain illness Um, or during COVID, all these young people in our lives who lost the opportunities for communities and graduation and being with classmates horsing around in class, like these are all losses. And, um, and we must learn to bear witness to one another in all of them. Yeah, absolutely. That notion that there are only certain things we're allowed to grieve And then other things we have to just like get over it or, you know, that's life is, is really a hard pill to swallow sometimes. Right. And I think so much of that is reflective of our discomfort at seeing other people struggle. And I think that's the muscle we need to work on is just, and and that's what bearing witness is about, right? Like knowing that I can sit with you while you're going through something that's really, really painful and awful and I can't change it and I can't fix it. And it's enough for me to just be here with you in this. So you're not doing it by yourself, but it doesn't, that doesn't feel tangible enough in our society, right? It doesn't, it doesn't. You know, when I was being trained by the Zen monks, um, you know, they taught us that we might walk into the room of somebody who's dying expecting to have these big questions about what their life had meant and where they're going next and does does life continue after death, all of these things. But they said, you know, if you walk into a room and a patient is watching Jeopardy, your job is simply to pull up a chair and watch Jeopardy with them. Like you let them lead, you meet them where they are, not where you think they should be or where you want them to be. Yes, yes, I love that. So I had this experience, my um, mom's mom had early onset Alzheimer's and there were so many layers of grief around that. Like not only was it that, you know, she didn't know who anybody was anymore and she needed 24 seven care at some point, but she and my grandfather had had all these grand plans, right? For that they had bought this huge motorhome and they were going to drive all over the United States and that, you know, all of this stuff that they were not able to do. So there were just really all these layers of grief. She wasn't, she came to my wedding, but she was super confused and didn't know who anybody was. And it was terrifying for her and all of that. So I can remember one time um, going to visit my grandfather and, um, by then, I think it had been eight or nine years and my grandmother was really pretty well advanced. And um, my grandfather and I went out to dinner and the Outback Steakhouse was his favorite place to go. And he always wanted to get this, you know, the blooming onion appetizer thing, like that was his thing. And I was feeling really awkward. I was, you know, 22, maybe 23 years old. Um, 
And I was he and I was saying to him, you know, I want to go visit grandma tomorrow in the care facility. And he's trying to prepare me for how really awful it was going to be because it had been a couple of years since I saw her. And I kind of cocked my head and I looked at him and I started to open my mouth and he pointed his finger at me and he said, if you tell me that God wouldn't have given this to me unless, you know, that it's like some test of my will or, you know, God only gives you things that you can handle. He goes, I'm going to pick up this blooming onion and I'm going to smash it in your face. And my <sighs> grandfather was like six foot two and he was this huge, and I, and he was the kindest, gentlest, most amazing. But you can tell that like so many people had said stuff like that to him. And I, I don't even remember what I was actually about to say, but I just sort of sat back and I said, okay this really sucks. Oh my goodness. Damn right it does. And he goes, and you know what we're going to do right now? We're going to drink a martini and eat this blooming onion and we're going to have a good time. And I was like, all righty then. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Wow. You know, like in, in the interest of talking about the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, um, I'll just tell you that actually Right as Heartwood was being released, on the very day that it was being released, I was having surgery for breast cancer myself. Mm. Um, and it was um, like just tremendously difficult. But what you're talking about and people's reactions um, are, are so present in my mind because the first thing I heard from most people was, Oh, does that run in your family? You're so young. Does that like, how how did you get that basically? And what I heard was their own fear. Like, how do I avoid that? Like, oh my goodness, thank goodness. It's not in my family. You know, they were looking for things to, um, to be okay with their own, with their own, um, understandable fears about this disease that affects so many women. Yeah. Yeah, somehow yeah. I need to insulate myself. I have, I need to convince myself that there's there are four reasons why this couldn't be me. Exactly, exactly. Maybe yeah. I'll do enough yoga and eat enough great food, and it will never happen to me. But um, these conversations about about death and our eventual mortality teach us that actually someday it will be us. But how do we live now um, yeah. so that we can um, live as fully and deeply and richly, no matter how much time we have. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And also that I think that it's acceptable to find, like my grandfather found pleasure in that martini and that blooming onion. <laughs> yes. Right? And yes. he could do that in the midst of this really, really terrible, excruciatingly painful time. And, yes. and you, and that's okay. Like that, it doesn't mean he didn't love my grandmother. It doesn't mean he wasn't grieving. It just means that's life, right? That's right. You, you have all of those things simultaneously, but he definitely didn't want to hear the platitudes. (laughs) (laughs) No platitudes. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, I, one of the other things that really struck me is something that you and I have in common. Both of my parents are deceased as well. And one, my, my dad died relatively quickly of cancer, about 18 months from diagnosis and to when he died. Um, and my mom had early onset Alzheimer's as well. And she was, was about 10 years of this slow progression in the beginning, but then, you know, pretty rough in the end. And, um, and I know that your parents, even though they died relatively 
close to each other in the you know time it was very it was similar right where your father had alzheimer's um and yes. your mom died pretty quickly yes. mm-hmm. one of the things that really struck me in this time with my parents was how unique and different the grieving process was not because not only because they were completely different human beings but because with my dad he was fully cognitively aware until the end right we he was in a lot of physical pain with cancer and the treatments and all of that but but he and i had that connection and that shared history until the the second he died he actually died in my arms and my mom because of the nature of alzheimer's didn't know who I was the last four years she was alive. Like she just had no concept of who I was. And so I was grieving for her when she was actually still on the planet (laughs) in her body doing all these things. And for my dad, there was sort of a a grief process while he was still alive, but mostly we were living together. And so I'm curious if you, if there was a distinct sort of difference in the way that you grieved for each of your parents as well. Mm. I'm, I'm sorry that this is your past too. It's, it is not an easy one. And I'm so glad we're, we're having this conversation because there's a whole field in the grief world called anticipatory grief. And that, um, is grieving the person, um, because they have some disease and you know that they will eventually die, but probably not away uh, right away and alzheimer's is one of those diseases where you watch people dying slowly in front of you um it, but it can also go for things like um you know a pending divorce like we just talked about or or knowing that you're going to have a mastectomy for example like it's an anticipatory grief before mm-hmm. something happens and i think what people would like to believe but is not true is that if you spend all that time in anticipatory grief then your grief after the person is gone will be shorter yeah and um it, that is really not necessarily true in fact it's like not frequently true at all we we yeah. still have to grieve grieve is not on anyone's timetable but our own um, you know, even though my, my parents died in close um, proximity to one another, um, I, you know, it's, it's been a long process of grieving for both of them. I mean, I just hit the five year mark with both of their deaths. Mm. And in some ways, I feel like it's a more intensely, um, uh, griefful time, grief, grief, rich time, maybe I would say mm. than it was like in the immediate loss when I had my brothers around me because we were hitting the holidays mm. and we, we gathered and we had meals together and people were like very much in our lives telling us how sorry they were and making casseroles and all of those things. Right, right. And then all of that goes away. And, um, you know, my son's, my, my youngest son just went off to college and it has brought up so much, um, particularly with my father who was, he loved education and he loved thinking about his grandkids going to school and to become an empty nester or an open nester, as I like to call it, mm-hmm. and to not have my dad and my mom there to witness it is so hard. Yeah. 
Yeah, my oldest um, graduated from college in May and um, my mom died in 2020, but my dad died in 2008. And in that, like sitting at my daughter's college graduation, I'm welling up again, just thinking about it, like sitting at my daughter's college graduation and thinking, "Ah, I wish my parents were here to see this. Like it would have been so fabulous, you know? Yeah, Um, yeah. So those milestones, those kind of, yeah, those there is this sort of grief. And then every year, you know, my dad died in May and my mom died in June. And there's those anniversaries, man, wham, sometimes they come out of nowhere. And I think, why am I falling apart today? And then I'll be like, oh, yep, this is the day dad died, right? Yeah. It's like somehow my body remembers, but even if my brain isn't aware of it. So yeah, it's amazing that sort of we expect people to do this like, linear like okay you're gonna go through these different stages of grief and then you're gonna tidy that up and put it away and you can still you know decades later be feeling these waves of emotion around those kind of things ah it's so true and this is why I am such a big believer in the power of ritual which um you know it's like what do we do I think quite often of the um, Mexican Day of the Dead, which is actually also found in cultures in in um, in pagan mm-hmm. uh, Europe and in Asia as well, where you bring objects that were important to the person who died to the grave, like you actually honor the lives on a regular basis with other people in community with other people and tell stories and. Um, you know, have photographs and drink their favorite drinks and have their favorite food. These things are so important because, um, you know, I, I just believe we can still talk in a way to the people who are gone, whether or not they can hear us, whatever your belief system is. Mm-hmm. Um, we still, I feel, have like an open line of communications to say what we need to say, to say, Dad, you know, your son just went to college with your niece, perchance. <laughs> like, how great is that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, the, I think it fits back into that whole notion of heartwood, right? Like, we are building from this. And so, unless we're honoring our ancestors, right, in ways that feel real and meaningful, um, we're not really paying attention to the foundation that we were, that we came from you know? Um, and I think there's this, this way that we've done, that we do things in this sort of Western cultures where the ritual part just becomes rote and not super meaningful. Um, and that, that piece of it is the piece that I struggle with, with people is it's like, how do we, how do we build intention around this? And how do we, how do we make meaning out of it? And also do it in a communal way, right? I don't want to just be like lighting my candle for my mom completely by myself. You know, I would like to be around my siblings and her siblings and, you know, maybe even a larger community. Um, And so I think that whole, the role of ritual in our grieving process and figuring out how to make it meaningful and intentional is something that could benefit all of us in the Western world. And I don't know that we know how to do that. We don't. Um, 
yeah, we really don't. I, I think that's such an important point. And the truth is there can be as many rituals as there are people on the planet. I mean, all that requires is our creativity, our our loss, our love, perhaps a couple of objects, uh, maybe something that we create, maybe something that we already had that we bring to the table. Maybe there's music, maybe there's dancing, you know, maybe there's silence, but we can do it however we want to do it. Um, You know, I'm, I'm a big believer in stealth ritual. (laughs) I I think at least in, in the little world that I live in, in um, New York city, a very like sort of academic head focused world. Mm. The last thing that a lot of people would do is pray before a meal. We lost blessings over meals, Mm -hmm. but then I discovered that we can give toasts, you know, and it serves the same purpose. Like we really can bring to that table the person that we're thinking of, the event that we're celebrating. Like we can ritualize things without calling them rituals or blessings, but we can do it on our own terms. And it's such an important thing to do. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I, I tend to do those things around food, right? So my family's heritage is Ukrainian and my Ukrainian great-grandmother is the one that taught me how to cook. And so often, you know, if I'm thinking about my mom or my grandmother, um, I will make, you know, cabbage rolls or a giant thing of borscht and then invite my cousins over, right? And there's this, and so to me, that's this way of kind of honoring the heritage and the, you know, where I came from, um, And it's not this big, heavy, it's not like we're all sitting around telling stories about my mom and crying, right? It's this, because I think that's the other thing um, is we think of the grieving process and these sort of rituals that mark the moment as having to be really sort of sober and, Mm -hmm. you know, rote. And and I mean, I grew up in the Catholic church, right? So everything was very much that way. but I love there was one story that you told in Hartwood about when your friend Tracy died and there was um, someone at the door. I think it was her, maybe her father who or her husband who was giving everybody a piece of hard candy for sweetness on this day of sorrow. Right. And just yes. like, yeah, that's just such a lovely little easy little thing to do that doesn't make you feel like everybody's wearing black and we all have to be crying in this, you know. Yes, yes. And they also, they were um, Taiwanese Buddhists. Mm. They also gave us a quarter in an envelope to spend on the way home on (laughs) on something special. So I spent it on a coffee on my way home and I was in the coffee shop and the um, the barista also gave me a donut for free. I think she. Wow. I mean, it just they really are. I think that was the best cup of coffee I ever drank because it had such meaning and it, it really was on the heels of a hard day and it it made me feel connected to Tracy and her whole family. Yeah, yeah, and I think I just I totally got like full body goosebumps when you were telling that story, and I think that's the key, right, is this understanding that there still is that connection, right? I mean, there are times, so my dad 
played football for the University of Oregon. And he, I, so we grew up like watching their football games and, you know, this fanatical, really fanatical way. And I have these two pom-poms that are the Oregon Ducks colors, you know, and the handles of them have the little logo on them and everything. And they're just tucked away in my closet. And every once in a while, I'll catch sight of them and I'll just grin because I just think, oh, pop, you're here, <laughs> right? There's, like, I, yeah. don't get me wrong, I would love it if he was still on the planet. And we still can have that connection. We still have that connection with those people. Yes. And it really um, has nothing to do with time and place. Like we transcend all of that with ritual. Um, now, I would just also mention that I was talking to a friend the other day whose father died unexpectedly and they had a Catholic service for him. And she said there was so much comfort for her in the, in the rope part, mm -hmm. in the, I like knowing what to pray, when to stand, when to kneel, when to sit mm -hmm. down, that it took her brain outside the, the forced, like needing to come up with something herself. And she just relaxed, like released into the ritual of it all, which I also yeah. felt was so beautiful. Absolutely. There, I do think that it's important for us to be able to sort of have that context, right? If if that's the context that feels really good to you, because the other thing, I mean, I am not a practicing Catholic, but I can tell you when I go, you know, to when I'm traveling, I always try to find like the big Catholic church somewhere because there's something that feels communal about it mm -hmm. to me, right? Mm -hmm. Even if there's nobody in the church, you know, just sort of knowing there's some predictability about it. It's like, you know, where the font of holy water is going to be. I know that all of the pews are going to have the little cushion that you, you know, fold down so you can kneel comfortably. Like there, there is, there's some sort of comfort in, in knowing that there's going to be something that's the same. Yes. And then, you know, yeah, during those times, um, you know, when I've gone to Catholic weddings or Catholic funerals and everybody is doing the same thing all at the same time, there is, there's that communal aspect of it that I think is really, it's like, oh yeah, it's this reminder. I'm part of something bigger than myself. Yes. Yes. My, um, my husband is Jewish and I have been to some services for people who have died in his family and um, one of the things that they do and have done through several of these services is at the graveside, you take a shovel and the people who are mourning are the ones who actually toss the dirt in and fill the dirt in on top of the casket, sometimes with their bare hands. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it is. It's a, it's both grounding, like a connection to the earth and that sunking sound on a hollow casket is like no other sound in the world. Yeah. And you know that people have been doing this for thousands of years. And we are like merely links in that, in that long, long chain. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I, there, there is, that sense of those rituals that have been sort of carried out through, you know, generation after generation after generation. For me, the trick is to 
pay attention, to be mindful, to, you know, not just sort of go through the motions, but to try to understand like, what, what is it? And what am I feeling in this particular moment? And, you know, how is this touching me? And, um, I had someone, I had to redo my will a few weeks ago because I moved um, from Washington state to California. And um, the attorney asked me, he's like, so, you know, what do you want to have? Do you want to be cremated? Do you want to be buried? You know, what do you want to have happen to your, to your body after you die? Um, And I said, I would like to be composted. And he goes, no. (laughs) And I said, what do you mean? No. (laughs) He's like, that's not legal in California. It's legal in Washington state, but it's not legal in California. You can't be composted. And I was like, well, then I can't die until until it's legal because I don't want to be in a box, right? So, but it was funny. We had this whole conversation about like, he's like, but you're going to be, you're going to be dead. Like, why do you care? You know? And, and it it was funny because I was talking to my kids about it and saying, you know, it is there. Yes, I'm going to be dead. And depending on what you believe happens afterwards, you know, I, I, have a pretty strong belief in reincarnation. And so I definitely know I'm not coming back into this body, but I still don't like the idea of my physical body either being burned into ashes or being stuck in a box for all eternity full of chemicals. Like that, I would really just like to go back to the earth. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You know, we have birth doulas that help us with the plan of, you know, what happens when we go into labor and what music do we want to have playing and how do we want to greet this being in our lives. Um, And now you also are increasingly seeing death doulas um, for the same reason. Like, how do you want your body to be treated in the final days? Like, you know, what are your plans? Do you want to be on uh, full life support? Do you want a do not resuscitate? Um, and also what happens, as you said, when when you die? What what would give comfort to your days to think about um, as you know that your body will be either in the ground or in flames or composted? Yeah. Yeah. And I I think there's something that's important about being able to confront those questions, you know? Um, I think my my parents were baby boomers and I think they were probably the first generation that really was faced with that question of life support or not. And what does that look like? And unfortunately for my mom, she was, you know, incapacitated. She was not able to, and her physical body was in great shape until COVID. And so, but with Alzheimer's, like she just could have kept going forever and ever and ever if it wasn't for COVID. Um, And so it makes my kids really uncomfortable to talk about it sometimes. But I, you know, I say like my dad went out the way he wanted to go out. You know, he was able to choose to end his life when we knew there was no way he was going to get better. Uh And, you know, he was in so much physical pain that it just wasn't worth it anymore. And I want to be able to have that choice for myself. You know, I want to be able, partially because I want people to remember me as a certain kind of person who, Mm. you know, I mean, and I want to be able to interact with people. My mom was not 
able to interact with people. You know, she was Mm -hmm. in a wheelchair and she was incontinent and she couldn't feed herself for like four years and was nonverbal. And it's, I don't want to live that way. So having those kinds of conversations and being able to think about that kind of like, what is my quality of life and what do I want my quality of life to be? I think is all part of the same conversation about how we relate to our own mortality. Yes. Yeah. And the words we use matter, right? Um, I started hearing when I was uh, working on hospice, I started um, hearing like the conversation about the DNR, do not resuscitate. And I started hearing A and D, allow a natural death, which is so much easier to take. And it has different legal questions. It's still not like solidly understood, but I could almost breathe a sigh of relief with families when they were thinking about hospice to think about allowing a natural death. Yeah. Yeah, it would be interesting. I would maybe someday I'll have a medical professional on the podcast to talk about that because as someone who worked in in medicine, it's really easy to get caught up in the, oh, well, there is a solution. And just because there is, we should do it, right? Uh (laughs) Instead Uh of seeing this person as like a whole actual human being and maybe just because we can doesn't mean we should, you know? Um, Right. Because I would imagine that's a real moral dilemma for a lot of, and not to mention the legal stuff, but, you know, a moral dilemma for somebody. It's, I mean, I know from my dad, you know, his wife was like, we can go to Mexico. There's all these experimental treatments or there's this, you know, Belgium, there's this clinic in Belgium where we could go, you know, there's like, she was just desperate to do it. And my dad was like, I don't want to. I hurt. I'm tired. I, you know, like, I just want to be done. And so coming to terms with that on our own is hard enough, but then helping our loved ones sort of come to terms with like, this is what I really want to have happen for me. Yes. Yes. I think that the more training we can get around death and dying, the better we are as a society. And I'm thinking about an exercise that we did in the Zen training program that I went through in which um, we took turns with a partner um, being a person who was not allowed and was not able to speak anymore um, or to express themselves with their hands. Mm-hmm. And the other person was to feed us a raisin. Mm-hmm. And you, you had to like not want it. So, I, you know, I put my lips together. I, you know, tried to, to mumble, mumble that I didn't want this. I, And the person out of true love was trying to give me food uh, that I did not want. And I, for the first time, understood when people have had enough. And it's not so much about our like desire to give them nourishment. It's about honoring their choice not to eat it. Wow. That I love that. I love that. I mean, I that that speaks to consent on so many different levels. Yes, yes, yes. And if we can define that for ourselves in our death plans, all the better. All the better to do the work sooner rather than later when we can't. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, my oldest daughter is the one who's the most uncomfortable with having these kinds of conversations. Um, because I've said to them, you know, I early onset Alzheimer's runs in my family. I've got it on both maternal and paternal sides. And I 
don't want to have that same life that my mom did. You know, I don't want to have the last four years of my life. And it's expensive. It was like $9,000 a month for her care too, right? For four years. Crazy. So, um, but my oldest daughter is just like, I don't want to talk about this. And and it's so walking that fine line between like, I understand that. And on some level, I need you to come to terms with the fact that someday I'm not going to be on the planet anymore. And I... And I need you, if if I can't advocate for myself, I need you to know what it is that I want and be willing to advocate for me because I can't, you know, I, I don't want to have that same life that my mom did at the end. She would have been yeah. enraged if she had known that you yeah. know, it was happening to her. So uh, you're right. Getting comfortable with those kinds of conversations, I think yeah. it's really, really important for us. Um, and it's a, you know, I think the more we have them, the less scary they tend to be too. Yeah. And have you noticed, I'm, I'm starting to notice this a lot, um, especially among adults is that, um, you know, when I first started writing this book, it took me 10 years to write. When I first started, uh, talking to people about the topic of, of death and approaching life through this lens of living with the end in mind, people would like run away. (laughs) But now I think there's a new eagerness. There's a thirst, there's a hunger in our society because, um, it's loss has seemed like so in our face and maybe COVID had something to do with that, like a global pandemic where we didn't know if we were going to live or die. I mean, in New York city, we had morgue trucks on the sidewalks and, you know, a military hospital out in the, in the Harbor. Um, and, and in central park, a field tent, like we literally didn't know if we were going to make it or not. Um, and I think that people really want to, talk now. Um, and kind of when they start talking about death and people they've lost, they can't stop talking in a way. So there's, a, it's, it's interesting. I I'm noticing a paradigm shift. It's slow, but it's really starting to happen. Yeah. I agree with you. I think there's something about giving people permission to talk about it and creating a container that feels safe, you yes. know, where we can like, it's not going to kill me to sit with this discomfort for a while. And once I realize that, then I can sort of open up a little more and trust that it's okay to talk about it. And I do think there's a paradigm shift around that. And But just sort of more, even if we sort of widen that lens a little bit more, I think there's a paradigm shift around a lot of things that a lot of us used to take for granted, you know, do, what kind of work am I willing to do? What does work even look like? What does work mean? How, you know, how, how do I want to spend my time here on the planet? Is it schlepping software 80 hours a week or not? You know, so yes, it's all part of that sort of larger conversation of figuring out how we want to live. And, yeah. And that I think is really exciting. It's so exciting. There's a study out about um, walking past graveyards and how it actually has the ability to throw us into a place where we question what we're doing with our life and our careers and our priorities in a way that um, invites like post-traumatic growth rather than, you know, PTSD. Like we, we, can um we can change our lives now in the here and now um 
to be what we want them to be. If we're willing to just take one step closer to death and see what it has to teach us. Yeah. Oh, all right. We're going to stop on that note because that was like a big truth bomb right there. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for writing this amazing book and for all the work that you're doing in the world. It was really great to talk to you today. It was so great to talk to you too. I hope the first of many times we get to talk. Yes, I hope so too. All right. So for all the listeners, there will be links um, in the show notes to where you can find Barbara and the work that she does and her amazing book, Heartwood. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening today. And we'll see you next time. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of It's Relatable. I'm your host, Carrie O'Driscoll, and you can find links to all the things we talked about on this episode in the show notes on the webpage for the podcast at mindbodyspirit.fm. Please reach out to me with questions, comments, and ideas for the show and download episodes and leave reviews on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you stream podcasts. If you like, subscribe, and follow, You'll be sure to get updated whenever there's a new show to listen to. The music at the beginning and the end of the show is a clip from a song called Get By. It was written by Lauren O'Driscoll, Alexander Parker Lawrence, and Moses Ray Walker. The song is performed by Lorelai and Sam Rydell, and you can find the whole amazing song wherever you stream music. I highly recommend it if you need a mood lifter. I also want to give a shout out to Moses Walker for helping me produce this podcast. He is always and forever making these technical things seem so much more doable for me. And I am grateful for his expertise and advice. Until next time, take care, mind your relationships, and be well, everyone. I'm Rachel Corpus, an angel communicator, psychic medium, and host of the Angel Talk podcast. This show is meant to help you remember who you are, a limitless being with shoes and socks on. And along the way, we'll connect to people on the other side and experts in the field like authors, healers, animal communicators, and more. Listen to all my shows at Mind Body Spirit FM or wherever you get your podcasts.